as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Dr. Lacey Hunt, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be with you. So uh, we're speaking with you. You are down in Texas, is that right? Austin, Texas, yes. And uh, I called you because I have had a long-standing debate with several of my friends and uh, people I respect about the pressure that will be created on our financial system with the amount of money that has just been injected into the economy because of coronavirus. And um, one of the people that I respect most in the world, a man named Fred Barton, said you could do no better than talking to Dr. Lacey Hunt about what he thinks are going to happen to U.S. Treasuries and how that impacts either inflation or deflation. So here we are today, sir. How would you describe your fund and what you do as a day-to-day living? Well, I'm in the investment management business. I'm not in the mind-changing business. <laughs> Macroeconomist by training. Um, I have three degrees, including the Ph.D. in economics which um, I earned in 1969. My fields were macroeconomics and and international economics and finance and econometrics. Uh, specialized in econometric model building in the early part of my career. After, um, after graduating from Temple University in Philadelphia, I went to the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Uh, William McChesney Martin was chairman of the Fed. Not many people remember his name. And uh, when I left, um, Arthur Burns was chairman. Uh, I had some success building econometric models, and I was offered a position with um, Chase Econometrics, which was the econometric subsidiary of Chase Manhattan. And... um, Chase Econometric was run by Michael Evans, who was co-author of the Wharton Econometric model with Lawrence Klein. I worked closely with Evans, built the first large-scale econometric model of the financial markets based on monthly data. And uh, that was published in Dynamics of Forecasting Financial Cycles in 1976. That book was reviewed very favorably on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, I had an opportunity to do some work for the great David Rockefeller, who was running Chase Manhattan. And uh, from after I left Chase, I was the chief economist for the uh, largest bank in Philadelphia. And then for 15 years, I was the chief U.S. economist for the HSBC Group and its predecessors. And I joined Hoisington Investment Management Company uh, in 1996. I'm a native Texan, and um, I I enjoy being in the investment management business. Hoisington Management um, probably has the the best record in in fixed income management for whatever time period you want for the last 30 years. In the uh, latest 12 12 months, uh, our standard uh, fund, the Wasatch Hoisington Treasury Fund, is up over 50%. 
which means we were positioned for this big decline in rates that took place. It was a long duration. We had substantial capital gains that augmented our coupons. And so um, we, we manage funds uh, for institutional clients, but individuals can invest with us through the fund for which we are the sub-advisor. The fund is really a rel relatively small portion of our business. So when you say you do fixed income, you're talking about U.S. treasuries, things that aren't moving around? We, we only invest in the treasury portion of the fixed income market. We don't do agencies or corporates or municipals. We're strictly duration managers. We want to be positioned uh, in long maturities when we think interest rates are coming down, and we want to be positioned in short maturities when we think inflation and interest rates are going up. So when I look at the news and see $2 trillion is being injected into the economy, my overly simplistic model of the world is you did not create more goods. You didn't create more services. You just added more dollars chasing around those goods and services. So it seems apparent to me that inflation is obvious, but I'm told by several people that that's not the way to view the world. What do you think? Well, uh, it is not. Um, the, um, the Federal Reserve um, undertook very similar programs to what they're doing now um, back after the great financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. It was called quantitative easing. Um, and uh, the Federal Reserve bought a large quantity of the federal debt. It was supposed to accelerate economic activity lead to higher inflation, cause a collapse in the dollar, especially since the federal budget deficit was also simultaneously rising very rapidly. Um, however, uh, that's not the monetary. The monetary economics is very complicated. And um, the, the Fed uh, can buy government securities, agency securities, but when the transaction clears, uh, essentially what happens is the, the sellers of the treasury debt give up, um, on average, a seven-year maturity uh, obligation. And when this clears and goes through the banking system, the banks then have a deposit at the Federal Reserve, overnight deposit. So the principal effect is really just to lower the average maturity of the consolidated government balance sheet. When you consider the, the, the Fed is a part of the U.S. government, um, the banks uh, do have reserves, which they could convert into loans, and this would lead to uh, an acceleration in the money supply. Uh, however, for that to happen, uh, you, you've got to meet a lot of hurdles. Number one, the, the banks have to have the capital. Uh, to put their uh, reserves at risk. And uh, they also have to be able to make a determination that putting those reserves uh, at work in the form of lending, that um, the borrower is going to repay. And since they don't know for sure whether the borrowing is going to repay, they have to price in the risk premium that the borrower will default. And by the same token, the borrower... Uh, has to make a rather complex decision as to whether 
they want to put their capital at risk by borrowing additional funds. Whether they, if by borrowing the funds, uh, should they not be able to repay it, will that cause that firm to uh, lose its viability, become bankrupt? So um, the bottom line is this. Debt is an increase in current spending in exchange for a decline in future spending. Debt, take on debt, current spending goes up, future spending goes down, unless the future debt generates an income stream to repay principal and interest. If you generate income streams to repay principal and interest, it's all good. Unfortunately, the debt that we're taking on, while it's politically popular, humane, uh, necessary because people are hurting, what we're basically doing is we're, we're financing day-to-day -day living needs. We're keeping business afloat that would have otherwise failed. This does not generate an income stream to repay principal and interest. So I don't know if you ever studied economics, but one of the most important concepts is the production function, which says that, that, that um, the GDP or our output is determined by technology interacting with the three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. And if you overuse one of the factors of production, uh, such as, as borrowed funds, initially GDP will rise. Uh, and if you continue to overuse that factor of production, GDP flattens out. And if you still overuse it, it turns down diminishing returns. And what has happened is we've long since passed the point of diminishing returns. Uh, in the case of government debt, uh, we have there's a lot of very serious econometric work that indicates that when, when government debt gets to about 50% of GDP, there's a deleterious impact on growth. Goes to 60, the deleterious effect is greater. The negative repercussions are greater at 70, 80, and 90. The econometric studies indicate that um, uh, growth against trend is, is lost, is, is reduced by about a third. In other words, if you were growing at, let's say, 3% in real per capita terms, you'll only grow two. Now, we were at 107 before the coronavirus hit. And by the end of this year, we're going to have a government debt to GDP ratio of something somewhere around 125 to 130%. Totally unprecedented. The diminishing returns is nonlinear. It's a parabola. You cannot think in linear terms. And a lot of people don't want to do that. Uh, they think this is business. This is accounting. It's not accounting. If I were a physicist and told you that you had to grapple with nonlinearities, you would say, okay, well, I understand that things can be elliptical or parabolic. But that's what happens. No, we have a lot of, a lot of cases that have occurred historically. And... Um, if you if you pursue the high debt road, what what happens is economies get weaker and weaker and weaker, and as the growth gets weaker, then you you get disinflation. Inflation falls to very low levels, and then eventually you get deflation. What's the difference uh, between the, disinflation and deflation? 
disinflation is when the inflation rate falls. Deflation is the point at which the falling inflation rate takes you through what's called the zero bound. In other words, you cross from, from some small degree of inflation to a situation where prices actually fall. And here's the difficulty that we have currently. Um, we came into uh, 2019 um, with the world $100 trillion more in debt than it ever was, heavily over in debt. Um, and the global economy was doing very, very poorly, very poorly. Uh, Germany, Italy, Japan um, were either in recession or very close to it. Um, China's economic growth in 2019 was the slowest in 29 years. And the only reason it was the lowest in 29 years is that's all the data they have. It was, it was doing very poorly. And um, perhaps one of the best metrics of why the global economy was in such trouble is that in 2019, the volume of world trade declined by about a half a percent. Um, and that's only the third annual decline in world trade volume since 1980. It happened during the deep recession of 82 and the deep recession of 2009. And historically, world trade volume grows faster than GDP. Normally, uh, World trade volume grows at five and GDP at two and a half. And it's the, it's the globalization that pulls you forward. But last year, because of the problems of the global economy, world trade was declining. The coronavirus hit at a very inopportune time. The, the, the domestically, we were over-indebted. All of the major economies of the world were extremely over-indebted. The global economy was over-indebted. And the emerging markets were over-indebted. And so what, what the world has been trying to do for a long time is to solve this indebtedness problem by taking on more debt. Now then we get hit by this event that comes out of left field. And what are we forced to do? We're forced to go further into debt. And so the, the steps that are being taken, while they're necessary, politically mandated, uh, popular, uh, they help people in dire times. What they're going to do is they're going to actually make the potential for economic growth much weaker. So uh, as a consequence, once we contain the coronavirus, um, and I don't know when that will be, but when, it, when it's contained to a reasonable degree, we will get a sort of a pent-up demand uh, recovery in economic activity, but it won't last very long. And then the uh, economy will struggle domestically and globally. We're not, we're not going to have a V-shaped recovery. It's going to be very difficult because all this new debt that we're taking on is going to weigh on our ability to grow. And if you go back to the production function, um, there, so remember production function has technology inter interacting with land, labor, and capital. Land has been neutral for a long time. Uh, the demographics, which are an important fundamental contributor to growth, have actually been deteriorating quite substantially, not just in the United States, but globally. Um, 
the population of the world last year grew at about the slowest pace in seven decades. In the United States, uh, in 2018, 2019, uh, our population growth was, was about 0.48%, which was the lowest since 1918. And that, of course, ironically, was the year of the Spanish flu. Um, our population has been coming down because, because um, uh, birth rate has fallen to the lowest on record. Um, in addition, uh, immigration has fallen legally and illegally. And um, so we're, we're growing at 0.45% before the coronavirus hits population-wise. Uh, Europe is only growing at 0.2. Uh, China's population actually declined last year. Um, uh, China, if you'll recall, um, had the one child per family, and um, then they didn't they didn't want the girl babies, so they got a 100 million gap between young boys who want to get married and childbearing women. In uh, international relations terms, they call that bare branches, and it, it's the start of uh, a lot of civil unrest because men that can't get married don't settle down. They get in a lot more trouble. Well, I am not able to comment on that, but it, it's it's certainly not conducive to having babies, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and then in Japan, population is declining by about, by about four-tenths percent per annum. And moreover, not only are the population growth rates coming down, the uh, average age of these major economies is getting older. Um, we're the youngest. The United States is the youngest, which is helpful to us. Um, Japan is the oldest, but um, the Chinese economy is getting old very rapidly. Our average age is about 38 plus, and in China it's 40, but in two years it'll be 41. Every two years, their average population is, is getting a year older. And um, older economies uh, are less vital. Babies are very expensive. You get, you get a surge through... Uh, the youngsters, and so, uh, so the, so this coronavirus is hitting when the global economy was stumbling all around the world, and uh, when all of the world is extremely over indebted, and now uh, they're being forced to take on more debt to try to solve the problem, which actually, over the longer run, it may get us through the short run. But it's going to make us weaker, not stronger. And when you and I were talking beforehand off camera, uh, you had mentioned that deflation, you, you imagine that prices will actually go down. And when I'm sitting here as somebody with money in a savings account, it would appear to me that, that the price of things going down would be really good. Now my money can go further. If you if you have if you are a net holder of financial assets, you'll be, be you'll be better off. You're, the debtor will be worse off. Um, let me just give you a couple of parameters with all what I'm talking about. If you look at the three worst post-war recessions, in other words, since since 1945, um, from the peak of inflation in or before the recession to the trough in inflation to the trough after the recession. Um, the 
the best measure of inflation dropped an average of about 430 basis points. In other words, if it were seven, it went to three, something like that. Um, okay, so, and that's the average. Um, but this time, we're starting when the inflation rate is 1.7. We don't have a high inflation rate. We have a very low inflation rate. And moreover, uh, one of the wild cards in the inflationary story is what happens to the most critical of the raw materials, which is energy. Um, if you look at these three terrible previous recessions, the oil price was actually unchanged. It went up in two of them and it went down in one. And uh, oil is oil is kind of plays to its own tune. It's it's based on supply and demand characteristics and so forth. But uh, what we're looking at right now is a record-setting percentage decline in oil prices, which is the is the largest of the commodity prices. It's not a determinant of inflation, but it it adds to this this disinflationary. So the the risk is that we're going to go from 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 1.7% rate of inflation down to minus two. It's, it's a mild deflation. Um, it's not serious like it was in the, in the Great Depression. But the risk is that it's going to be persistent. It's going to hang in there. And, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, we have these deleterious effects of all of this debt that we're taking on that are mandated by the circumstances. We have no choice other than to try to help people through the mouth. Okay. So moreover, once once we get our pent-up demand recovery and economic activity right after after the coronavirus is contained, we're going to have tremendous amounts, actually, I should say unprecedented amounts of what economists call of the output gap which is the, the amount of redundant resources that we have in labor and capital. And because of this huge output gap, unprecedented output gap, and the fact that we're going to struggle out, it's going to take us six to nine years to shrink this output gap and get it back to where it was in 2019. Now, when you say the output gap, do you mean that because we're going to have such high unemployment, we're going to have people that aren't working and then you're going to have capital assets that aren't being used or, or a machinery that you're not actually putting to use? So e even if you had people that wanted to buy it, you don't have enough to be able to get that um, supply. That's precisely what I'm talking about. Okay. The two main components of the output gap are labor and capital resources. They just won't be needed. And so um, when you when, when there is a lot of extra, extra resources, then um, the, the whole of the owners of those resources are forced to sell their services, their their product at lower prices, creates a margin squeeze. It puts downward downward pressure on the inflation rate. And so the, the significant risk here is that 
is when we go to deflation, the output gap suggests it will be staying with us. And probably we will see something that most people are not familiar with. Wages will actually fall. They won't have to fall dramatically, but they will they will be persistently downward. Well, that's what, what firms, who, managers who know nothing about measuring deflation are going to have to grapple with. And the employees don't know about having wages cut. And so it's going to create a, a very, very challenging situation. So in deflation, what you, you, you don't want to be a debtor because let's say you borrow a dollar today and we have a 2% deflation rate a year from now, you're going to have to pay back in purchasing power dollars that are worth a dollar and two cents. And um, the other aspect of deflation is that although the treasury rates come down, the corporate rates go up and the private borrowing rates go up because in, 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 in deflation, it will, it will raise the risk premium that the non-governmental borrowers will be able to repay. And so you're going to have an ironical situation. The government yields come down, but the other yields don't really. Uh, and, and so uh, it will be a, a difficult process. Why is it that you can't if, – if deflation is the problem and we watched in a place like Zimbabwe, their inflation went wild because they just turned on the printing press and there were so many more dollars out there that it brought the, the price of things back up. Why is that not the solution for, for this potential depression or why couldn't the Japanese just print their way out of deflation? Okay, well, in the case of the United States um, – we're governed by the various acts of the Federal Reserve. There, there are several acts that are critical. The Federal Reserve was set up in 1913, but there were critical acts when we went off the gold standard. And under the Federal Reserve, under law, the, the Federal Reserve cannot spend to pay for the Treasury's bills. That's not prohibited. I mean, that is prohibited. Um, now, you, you could rewrite the Federal Reserve Act uh, and give the Federal Reserve the ability to pay directly the Treasury's bill, bypass the banking system. But it's what we in economics call making the central bank's liabilities legal tender. And that has been done in many cases. Um, it, was, um, it was done by Chiang Kai-shek's China in the 1930s by the Germans in the 1920s. Uh, there was uh, Yugoslavia and Hungary did it at the end of World War II, two well-documented cases. There's a famous case in Bolivia in the 20th century in the United States, and there are other cases in Latin America. And um, it's basically what was done without a banking system in the final stages of the Roman, Mesopotamian, and Berber empires. <laughs> they became extremely over-indebted, and they couldn't pay their debts with, 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 with gold coin. And so what they came upon the idea was instead of giving gold to pay their mountainous debts, they asked folks to take a worthless metallic coin. And um, 
of course, what happens in that particular case, if you start printing money or issuing worthless metallic coin, then the price level begins to rise very rapidly, a la Zimbabwe. And what would happen in that case is that that will make virtually everyone's life totally miserable. Because, because if you, let's say we decided to give everybody $10,000 that was printed, not financed, but printed, um, then by the, by the time the last folks got their $10,000, it wouldn't be worth what it was to the folks that got their checks first. In Shanghai Shek's China, um, they they began to learn that the, the the fund the yen that they were getting were depreciating so rapidly in purchasing power that they demanded that they be paid first. And so what 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 the, what holders of money do is they will not want to hold money, and the only thing they will want to hold are commodities that they can use or trade. Um, it's what, what we in economics call Gresham's law. The bad money chases out the good money. And, and so if you resort to the printing money, you, you can, um, you can then get the hyperinflation. But let me tell you, everyone will be totally miserable because you see it, if everybody's holding commodities and unwilling to hold paper, there's no role for the financial intermediaries. And so to, to then obtain something you need, you have to go around and find someone else who has a double coincidence of wants to your own. Now, in the old days, when, when, when we saw these um, instances of money printing, we were not nearly as specialized. And so you could go into your local town and you could find someone that produces eggs and another person that produced meat and, and bread and let's say you produce candlesticks. And so you could, you could have some capability, but we all have specialized skills. So um, it's, it's very interesting um, when, um, when Chairman Powell introduced his latest measures on um, uh, the 9th of April, he held a brief webinar, which is well worth listening to. And he made it very clear that the Federal Reserve has the power to finance. It does not have the power to spend. And we, we just saw an instance in which a major central bank is engaging in money printing. The, the same time that Chairman Powell said the Federal Reserve does not have this authority to spend. The Bank of England advanced roughly a half a trillion dollars directly to the British Treasury. Now, they said it was temporary, but to it is nevertheless, it is a crossing of the Rubicon. It is a crossing of the red line. And... Um, Obviously, there are exigent circumstances because of the, of the difficulty. And it, it is conceivable at the present time that you might even be able to get away with it for a little while because there are going to be a lot of excess resources. But ultimately, um, hyper, hyperinflation would ensue 
economic conditions would become turbulent. And in the past, you've had social unrest. So the, the printing of money is, is really a desperate measure, very, very desperate measure. I think that maybe one of the fundamental mistakes I've made or one of the oversights I've had is that I never recognized that there was a difference between printing it and just injecting it into the economy and financing it through the banks in that it is the expectation that that will be paid off and that's how it's different. So you can run an interest rate and be potentially making money off of it. Is that, is that an under, is that right? That you, you, you basically got it. The, one of the critical writers of the Federal Reserve Act was a Virginia politician by the name of Carter Glass. I don't know if you know. He also was responsible for the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, and when, when the Federal Reserve Act was being written, he went to the two uh, leading monetary economists of the time, um, Irving Fisher Yale and Charles Whittlesey at the University of Pennsylvania. And he said, we, we want to give the Federal Reserve the ability to create liquidity, but we don't want to be able to give them the ability to spend. We don't want to uh, allow the U.S. Central Bank to become like a banana republic central bank. And so the, and under our system, the Treasury sells the debt. Then the Fed can buy from the Treasury. So initially, the public buys the debt from three-month bills out to 30 years, average maturity of seven years. And then so they swap a seven-year maturity government security for a one-day deposit at the Federal Reserve, for which they receive a very minimal, minuscule rate. Those deposits at the Federal Reserve do not circulate freely. They can be used to make loans. But as I described to you earlier, making of the loans involves the banks putting at risk their capital and also the borrower putting at risk his capital. And one of the things that has happened in here is that these circumstances have greatly undermined the, the um, financial stature of our banks. We're going to see a lot of loan loss reserves, a lot of loan losses as a result of this disruption. And the banks will have to charge that off. And so their capital is going to be uh, eroded. Moreover, the borrowers are going to see that they do not need new plant, nor do they need as many employees as they needed before. And so consequently, the likelihood that the banks would be reaching a deal with their customers to make additional, um, additional loans and money are not likely. So initially, there's a spike in the money supply, which we're seeing right now, but that is a first round effect. It occurs in the first instance, and then the deposits that the, that the banks uh, received from the Fed are just sitting idly at the Federal Reserve. That is, unless, of course, you take the disastrous step of allowing the Federal Reserve to uh, directly fund the Treasury. Now, this, this has been advocated before in the United States. Um, 
there was during the administration of, of Franklin D. Roosevelt something called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, the RFC. And their original idea was to send their accounts payable ledger to the Fed and have the Fed pay the bill. But the, the courts ruled that that was a violation of the Federal Reserve Act. And there have been various other proposals. And as Governor Powell reiterated in his recent webcast, the Fed does not have that. And by the way, for my money, we do not want them to have it. If, if, if we give it to them in some sort of emergency situation, then what we will have will be much worse than what we have now. So it's one thing for you to be uh, managing treasuries and people's assets and trying to figure out what's going on over the long term. What about your family? Are you telling them, hey, be careful about how much debt you're taking out now or have cash at your house? Like, how are you in, in a time of chaos instructing those that are closest to you? Well, um, we, we at Hoisington Management eat our own cooking. In other words, we don't do one thing with client money and something else with our own money. So, uh, so we have been heavily investing in longer term, longer term, uh, high quality debt. But I have been recommending uh, to to my children and to friends that this was not a time to take on debt. And unfortunately, our corporate sector has done exactly the opposite. Uh, the corporate sector is more heavily leveraged now than they've ever been. And last year, we saw a, a record increase in corporate debt. And by the way, capital spending in real dollars was unchanged. So we had a huge increase in debt, but no increase in capital spending. And what they were doing is they were buying their shares back. They were actually... Uh, leveraging the balance sheet. And um, can you explain what that they, means? So I worked at a company where they did that a lot, but a lot of people don't understand. I mean, because it buoys the stock price. So if you're holding shares, people feel like you're making money that way. They do, but it does, it makes the bank. And by the way, the argument was that their earnings were secure and that their, their cost would be low. Well, their earnings are not secure, as we've seen. The coronavirus has severely shaken the income stream for many. And in addition, as, you, as the risk of deflation has emerged, the treasury rates have come down and the corporate yields have risen. And so um, one of the great names in corporate finance um, said that the key to sound financial management of a corporation is to sell more of your shares when the share price is high and to buy the shares when the shares are low. But what were firms doing the last several years? They were buying their shares at a high price and issuing debt. And that the man that said that was the late Benjamin Graham who is the father of investment analysis. The key to sound financial management is to sell your shares when the price is high and then to buy the shares back when the price is low. They did exactly the opposite. And this was heading into coronavirus that they were not in strong financial positions. 
so when when this goes on, then how does that how does that play out? Then what what happens to a company that's taken on that? It debt? made them very vulnerable. Now the corporate sector is very vulnerable, and and they're going to find that their the cost of borrowing is going up to them rather than down. And in addition, what they're going to find is that their earning stream and their cash flow stream is much weaker weaker than they assumed. This was an event that came out of left field. So if you're investing in treasuries that are seven years out, I mean, who, who was it? Khrushchev? That's we've it. actually been, we've been out, out longer than that. We've been out close to 30 years. That, and I was looking up your numbers. I mean, as far as I can tell, you guys have returned over and over and over again, positive returns, um, doing very well. When you look out and you're buying treasuries that are 30 years out, Khrushchev wouldn't even look more than five years out for his plans. How do you have confidence um, in that distance of time? Well, we, we, we don't. We, we, we only have confidence in the next several years. In other words, our investment strategy is for the next three to five years. And so we're not buying them to hold to maturity. We're buying them as long as the inflation rate is going down. Uh, the bond market has a very important uh, fundamental relationship that explains the movement of long treasury rates. It's called the Fisher equation. It's one of the pillars of macroeconomics. It says that the risk-free long rate is equal to the real rate plus expected inflation. Now, what's happening here is the real rate is coming down the growth rate is getting weaker. This was the this was this expansion that we went through was the worst uh, since the end of World War II. And by the way, I'll just give you a number from 1790 to the period of high indebtedness in the late 1990s. The economy grew two percent in real per capita terms, which means the standard of living grew two percent per annum. Since then, the last 20 years the economy in real per capita terms has only grown about 1.1%. We've lost one third of our growth rate during this period of high growth. And so the we, we saw the real rate coming down and we saw inflationary expectations declining. Now, now if you think about that equation, the government bond yield is equal to the real rate plus expected inflation. The recession is going to make the real growth rates lower. So one of the components of the Fisher equation is going to be pushing downward. The inflation rate is going to go negative into deflation, which suggests to us that the entire Treasury yield curve is going to press down on the zero bound. And that it's going to be stuck there. For years. It's the way it looks at the present time. But as I said, we're in the investment management business. We're going to look at everything that's being done. One of the things that is being advocated right now is that the country uh, engage in money printing, something called modern monetary theory, which is neither modern nor theory. It is, it is usually using a worthless item to pay for existing bills. And so we, we're in a difficult situation here. Deflation is a risk. And so there is a, a clear possibility 
that the Federal Reserve Act could be rewritten. And as I said, the Bank of England has already stepped into the Rubicon. And so when you look at uh, the idea of, of individual citizens getting a check, you know, we just $1,200 out to people making under, I don't know, $120,000 a year, and then um, and then potentially now $2,000 more coming in next month per taxpayer, what does this do to the economy when you're taking money and you're giving direct payments to directly to consumers? The, the, the problem... It, it, it allows the consumers to get by. But the, the, here, the government issues the debt. The debt will not stay at 107% of GDP. It's on the way to 125 to 130. And if you overuse the factor of production, you get less output. For example, um, we had a $2, a $2 trillion stimulus package in 2009, shovel-ready projects. You remember that? Yeah. It was it was it was going to be financed by the Federal Reserve, quantitative easing. We were told it was going to lead to higher inflation, lower dollar, stronger your economy. Did any of that happen? No. <laughs> we had the weakest recovery since the end of World War II. So what this does, it allows those families that have lost income to continue spending. But the debt is still there. And the debt will, will will it will serve as a overhang on growth. Yeah, that current spending didn't result in better uh, producing in the future. It just kept you alive. It, it all it did is replace what would have not been spent. It allowed people to pay their bills. That's why I said it was popular. Why it was humane? It almost gave no. It, there, there's no doubt that it should have been done. But the net, but but I, as an economist, have to analyze the longer-term consequences. So I, I acknowledge that it was politically popular. I acknowledge that it was humane. It was the thing to do, but it nevertheless has a negative economic consequence on growth. So I've worked in the biotech sphere and and agriculture, where there are people that have wide-ranging opinions about how things ought to be done. And one of the things that I find very interesting is if you find a person that is clearly uh, very well-read on something, a good question to ask them is, who is someone that you uh, really respect but you completely disagree with? Somebody that is a high caliber, but they, they view the world very differently than you do. I'm, I'm just not in the mind-changing business, and I don't, I don't go there. I just defend my own statements. Okay. I'm not looking for any fights. Um, then maybe the last question, and this is something I've asked all of the all of the people that have been on, is what do you think the world will look like in two weeks? Well, I'm really, um, I'm not a short-term person. <laughs> uh, I really, I, um, to me, uh, markets over the short run are very irrational. They're influenced by psychology and a whole host of heuristic trading methods. Uh, the fundamentals only exert themselves over time. If I were to be asked to write a book on the factors that influence the bond market over the short run, it would be a very, very long book. But these short-term influences are not important. What is important for 
the bond market, the government bond market is the Fisher equation, which says that the uh, the yield is equal to the real rate plus expected inflation. And as an investor, not a trader, I keep my eye focused on that fundamental relationship. Well, Dr. Hunt, this has been a wild ride, and I am very grateful that you were willing to be so patient and explain these ideas to me. If people wanted to learn more about uh, your fund and your work, where would they go? They could write me at Lacey at Hoisington.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll check back in with you later. Okay. <laughs>